Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Renee Vangesty, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we'll take a look at China's loss of its crown as the world's most populous country, and we'll also take a closer look at the plight of China's legions of deliverymen. And what one city is doing to try and improve their lot. We'll start with what's arguably the biggest macro story of the year, namely China's loss of its title as the world's most populous nation. The country's held that distinction for more than a century, but the UN forecasts it will lose the crown around the middle of this year. By that time, its population will reach 1.4257 billion people. Which is lower than the uh, 1.4286 billion people for nearby India, plus or minus a few million. So, Renee, this is definitely a huge milestone, though it's been forecast for years now as China's population growth slowed under its one-child policy. China's already quite densely populated, yet many people are saying this is a bad thing for the country.、Uh, can you take us through why a country that's so congested? Uh, losing its population crown would be a, a bad thing. Well, first of all,、uh, a quick quick note about、uh, density of population.、Uh, parts of China are densely populated; other parts are not.、Uh, and when you look at the,、uh, the United Nations statistics. China's population density is actually 150 people per square kilometers. Holland, by contrast, is somewhere around 500. And when when you look at the map of China,、uh, very clearly, if you look at the eastern、uh, seaboard, pretty much. I mean, obviously, going inland, you have very high、uh, density of population. But then you go to the rural areas in many parts and. And the density is much lower, so it it it's all relative, and it all depends obviously on where, from a government standpoint, a planning standpoint, and so on, where you want,、um, you know, to build economic development, which is typically followed by、uh, movements of population. So that's just as、mm. a, a, a starter here.、Um, then the the major issue, obviously, is. Population in China is shrinking, primarily due to a、uh, lack of birth.、Uh, what it does is that over time it increases、uh, the percentage of the population, which is、uh, of non-working age, if we can call it that way, relative to、um, the percentage of the population which is working age, and which typically. Working age populations are the ones that directly and indirectly support pretty much all the people, retired people,、uh, who contribute no active part to economic production. So, from from an overall policy standpoint, this obviously creates quite a number of issues、uh, for the central government. Think, for instance, in terms of pensions, funding of pensions, and so on. You know, substantial issues in terms of healthcare,、uh, also especially care for older people, 
And generally speaking, lower vitality represented mostly by younger people and uh, lower number of uh, younger people overall to enter the workforce and, and provide labor to China's economy going forward. Now, part of that could be somewhat offset by uh, changing by changes in Chinese economy, especially on uh, the manufacturing side, going much more to high-tech uh, industries, which require typically fewer hands than low-value-added uh, manufacturing uh, production. This has been the case mostly for the past 40 years. Mm-hmm. This is self-inflicted, I think, as you alluded to, clearly the result of the one-child policy. They did change and allow, first of all, families to have two children and then more recently uh, three children. But none of these have been substantially successful in terms of policy changes and in terms of impact on the number of births. Uh, There are a number of reasons for that, but uh, they always to some extent, come back to economic considerations. And we all well know what those are. It's uh, the cost of real estate. You get more kids, you need a bigger apartment. Real estate is expensive. You get education uh, is expensive. Um, So that generally is viewed as the reasons why far fewer people than the government hoped or expected um, actually decided to have two children, not to mention three children. Well, so that is going to be my next question. Is there nothing? Is, is this sort of an unstoppable demographic trend? Or is there anything you think the government can do to, to sort of improve the situation? Well, um, they certainly did try, right, uh, by the successive changes to the one-child policy. That did not really produce the desired uh, results. Um, When you look at the countries in the West, similar problems or slowdown in the number of births, natural progression of population, if you want, uh, have been offset by immigration. The U.S. is a pretty good example of that, which basically almost from the beginning has been built on immigration. Hard to see that happening in China, though, for (laughs) um, political reasons, for cultural reasons, and so on. It's a little bit similar to predicament that Japan found itself in, uh, initially obviously not uh, wanting immigration. My understanding is that these days, at least in some sectors, Japan is becoming a little bit more open to immigration, but it's it's hard to, hard to envisage that um, would be a solution that would actually happen in China. <laughs> now, I can't, can't see them opening the floodgates to uh, immigrants here anytime soon, but right. you never know. Um, so, just quickly, any before we move on to the next topic, any suggestions you might make uh, that that you think could actually have an impact? Not, uh, not that I can think of. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, the the obvious suggestion is fix the problems that are, you know, reportedly preventing a lot of young people from having more than one child. But that's that's easier said than done. I mean, you have profound implications there in terms of 
the real estate market, real estate prices, which, you know, let's not forget for, you know, until now have been, real estate has been primarily the one reliable source of wealth accumulation for uh, a lot of Chinese people. So uh, the solution, obviously, would be to make uh, housing a lot cheaper. But then on the other side, then you're destroying wealth for you know, a relatively large number of Chinese people. So that's a, that's a pretty tough nut to crack. Um, that is until the real estate sector does it to itself, to itself. But that's less likely, at least in a significant amount. Um, education is another one. Interestingly enough, the wave of regulatory crackdowns that we've seen over the last two and a half years included a crackdown on um, after-school education, which um, has generally been attributed to Mr. Xi's campaign of harmonious society and equality and so on, uh, because the race for superior education in China and for successful career for the children increasingly included people, parents and grandparents to spend increasing amounts of money on uh, after-school education, private tutoring and so on for the children. And usually it was for the one child in the family. So that, I think, to some extent, was an attempt at solving uh, one of the issues, but um, it doesn't seem that, and this is about two years old now, it doesn't seem to really have had a major impact in terms of how younger people think about having more than one child, at least not yet. Next, we'll look at the millions of anonymous workers, mostly men, who put in long hours every day delivering food, parcels, and other things across China. This group recently made headlines when the city of Hangzhou told employers to make sure this group of people were getting the social insurance they need. The call came after a number of high-profile cases where delivery men were injured in accidents but lacked the necessary medical insurance to pay. So, Renee, uh, China, as we all know, has very strict labor laws saying all employers need to provide social insurance for their workers. And uh, these companies are employed by some very big names that probably don't want to risk breaking the law. So how exactly are they skirting the labor law requirement? I think that the, the fundamental issue here is that quite a number of those companies actually are not the direct employers of the rider. Mm. There are companies that specialize in providing rider fleet. Uh, fleets, if if you want to call it that way, to companies that um, require that type of service. One example that that comes to mind because I was relatively close to it a few years ago is a company based in Beijing called Chuhuo, which uh, was exactly in that business. Uh, I think that at some point in time, two years ago, they had 30 thousand, 30 plus thousand <laughs> riders that uh, were actually uh, delivering goods for all kinds of companies, including fast food chain uh, restaurants and so on. So that could be 
what is really the uh, cause here. Mm -hmm. That if you look in at some of those employers which are big, they actually are not, wouldn't be breaching the law because they are not the direct employers of the riders. And and maybe mm. that's what the Hanjo is after here, which is to actually force everybody in the chain to focus on ensuring that those riders are properly, correctly insured as per the labor law requirement. Right. I mean, this is sort of my, and I was thinking of the Chuhua experience as well, uh, you know, just the, the whole business that Chinese laws are always so strict and then Chinese companies always seem to try to find ways to get around them. Uh, <laughs> do you know what they're doing specifically? Is, is a company like Chuhua, are they hiring these guys as contractors and therefore not required to give them, you know, social benefits? Or do you have any idea? I, I, I don't know how the law works there. No, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't really want to, uh, to make any judgment on that but specifically focus on the structure of uh, that kind of labor uh, in China. It is not um, that dramatically different, if, if you want to be objective, to um, you know, what some companies like Uber and Lyft and, and so on in the U.S. have done. Different technique, probably, and definitely different legal environment. But, but you know, these are big enough and successful, at least in the case of Uber. Uh, but basically, structuring uh, the use of key resources in their business in a way that they do not have to be on their payroll. Mm. Those companies don't have to pay you know, what other companies have to pay in terms of um, equivalent to social insurance and employment taxes and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been a pushback, as we all know, in the US, especially in California against that, and in the UK as well, from what I know, and probably other parts of Europe as well, which are more traditionally linked to uh, strong unions and so on. But it's uh, as far as China is concerned, um, that's, I think, the um, uh, the root cause of the problem here. I doubt that Alibaba would um, very proactively not respect Chinese labor laws. Right. Next question is then, you know, in a way, I, I wouldn't say Alibaba because I don't even think they do that much delivery, although I guess they use all the delivery companies, but any of the, the big beneficiaries of all the big companies like the Alibabas and the Meituans and you know, the delivery companies, because by doing things this way, they can really squeeze their costs and give people stuff at the, the lowest cost possible. And and you and I both know there's just gazillions of these delivery men all over the place. I mean, it's, it's really something that's very China-specific that you don't see, at least in the West. Right. So I, I guess my question is, if companies do need to start paying social insurance, whether it's the third-party contractor, because they're going to ultimately pass the cost on to Alibaba and Meituan, and, and, you know, really respect these other labor laws, do you think that they're going to be able to keep employing just this huge number of uh, delivery people, you know, who really are quite effective? I mean, you get stuff within 24 hours, and it's 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 a very good system, but I don't think it's that good for the delivery guys. 
Right. I mean, let's also not forget the consumer in here, because, you know, when you look at this, uh, whether you're thinking about food delivery or, you know, supermarket uh, staples delivery and so on and so on, obviously the big companies in the middle uh, have benefited from cheap labor. Consumers have benefited from cheap labor as well. But then you look at it from a social standpoint and equality standpoint, if you want, in the context, especially in China, of harmonious society, more um, distributed income and wealth and so on. Very clearly, those uh, riders who most of the time obviously are migrant workers have been exploited and to some extent abused. Mm. That really should stop. It's mm-hmm. a big difference when you compare, you know, two worlds. You look at the riders uh, in China and you look at, let's say, the drivers for Uber in the U.S. Uh, first of all, the standard of livings are widely different. The um, environment is, is totally different. And, you know, I often talk to um, Uber drivers in the U.S. and those that are really active are doing okay. Thank you very much. Mm. Now you look at the uh, at the delivery riders in China, and and you know you know they're not doing okay overall. That's mm. pretty clear. So that that should be changed, no matter what, no matter the impact on on the big companies, and inevitably at the end of the day, you know, no matter the impact on on the consumer, the consumer is going to end up having to pay a bit more for that. Right, right, and. Ultimately, I, I, my feeling is probably, you know, whatever the new economics are, probably won't be able to sustain quite as large a, a number of these guys. But I guess, guess we'll have to see. Yeah, it, one of the issues is going to be if, if, if you start transferring that cost all the way down the chain to the consumer, you know, what, what is the magnitude of the change? And and what it's likely what is its likely impact on consumer behavior will consumers stop getting food through metuan from metuan or elmer or whatever because they're going to have to pay maybe a few more kwai for each delivery it's hard to believe some may be price sensitive enough but i think in general once people have learned to live with that and and the ease of living that way I doubt that uh, that they will go back to taking the trip themselves to go buy food. Yeah, that's true. It's very convenient. Okay, well, uh, let's wrap things up there. Um, everybody, thanks again for listening this week. Uh, if you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of China Inc. when we'll look once more at the latest trending China business topics. Hope to see you all then. Goodbye for now. Thank you all.